Hello, and welcome to Remember the Film, the podcast where we only eat one egg for breakfast because one egg is unoof. Uh, my name is Josh Bradley. I'm joined by my co-host, Jeff Grizz Ulrich. How's it going, Josh? <laughs> and by Hugo Panay. What's up, Hugo? Hi, hi. Doing good. How are you? That intro get you guys? You guys weren't expecting that, huh? <laughs> uh, I, mean, I was no, expecting yeah, something got, funny, but I'm glad I didn't know I exactly what it was going to be. something, but I didn't... Yeah. Uh, that intro I didn't brought know to you... if I was going to get it, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> that intro brought to you by our two previous episodes, both of which have been about movies not in English, and uh, now we're returned to The Kings <laughs> with this episode, and uh, we're talking about Trial of Chicago 7 and uh, our guy Aaron Sorkin. Um, one of the best movies of 2020, I think. Grizz, I think it's your number one It is my number one movie from Trials 2020. Uh, Hugo, where are you at on Trial of Chicago 7? I, no, we'll get into I, it. We'll get into it. Yeah, we'll get into sit, it. Sit on it. We'll, we'll get into it. Uh, we'll and we got a lot to talk about, so let's get right into it, I guess. Um, yep. Some some fun stuff and or background on Trial of Chicago 7. This was originally a Spielberg project, which I didn't know mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. I started doing research for this episode, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, uh, Sorkin gave an interview with Vanity Fair about the origins of this project, and he said it started in 2006. When uh, he went to Spielberg's house and Spielberg said he wanted to do a movie about the protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention and the subsequent trial. And uh, according to Sorkin, he had never heard of either the protests or the trial, or so he says in that interview. He's a, I don't know, kind of a self-deprecating guy, so he might be... He might, might be exaggerating be, uh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exaggerating a little bit there, just to, yeah. Um, but yeah, so Sorkin, was, uh, Sorkin wrote that script uh, to be made by Spielberg in 2007. And it didn't go into production because the writer's strike and the fall of 07 in the spring of 08. And uh, I, don't, I don't think we're the guys to do this, but I want someone at some point to study the domino effect that happened because of the writer's strike in 2007. Oh, yeah. Like what movies yeah. didn't go into production, you know, what TV shows didn't go into production, etc. Because like that would be a great video essay. Honestly, yeah. I mean, just looking at just this movie, a sample size of mm-hmm. one, like... Spielberg apparently wanted Will Smith for Bobby Seale and Heath Ledger for Tom Hayden. That's a really, really different movie. I mean, just Spielberg making this instead of Sorkin's a really, really different movie. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I don't want to get too far in the weeds with this, but, like, what if Heath Ledger makes this instead of The Dark Knight, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Like, that's a that's a chilling domino effect to think about. But, <laughs> again, maybe discuss it for another scenario. day. <laughs> yes. So uh, the movie was not made with Spielberg in the director's chair in 2007 because of the writer's strike. So uh, Sorkin continued rewriting the project over the next few years, and they apparently almost made it in 2013 with Paul Greengrass directing. Uh, mm-hmm. Paul Greengrass, who's also made several successful uh, adapted from true events movies like United 93 and Captain Phillips. So yeah. that would have been good. Also would have been a very different movie from either the one Entirely we got or the Spielberg version. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they apparently couldn't agree on a budget. That's why Paul Greengrass didn't make this. Um, that seems like a next... weird hang-up. Budget? Well, I mean, like for this kind of movie, like I just I'm, I'm wondering what he was asking for that they thought was unreasonable. You know? And yeah, and I, I wonder what his vision depends of this was. Which you know? actors you're casting? Well, it, it depends on which actors you're casting. Yes, but also depends on what the scope of your story is. Like if you, if you, there's a, there's a cheap version of this movie that's set entirely in the courtroom and there's a more expensive mm-hmm. version that we kind of got where yeah, it like, that's what, show, I was, that's what I'm like wondering, like what more everything. did he want that Sorkin didn't end up getting? Well, I just <laughs> I think it, the, the landscape is different because um, this movie being able to exist with Netflix is not something that could have happened in 2013. When was this with Paul Greengrass? 2013. Yeah. 
yeah so i, I just think the, really the kind of the yeah. landscape of of production and how which movies get made in well, how is is a little different yes but we'll also get into that netflix didn't fund this they just bought it and distributed it paramount Afterwards. funded this and they were going to distribute yeah. it but then netflix kind of took it off their hands but we'll get that hmm. in, a, in a second um after Greengrass and, I guess, Paramount, whoever it was, couldn't agree on a budget, the next major milestone in this movie's history is uh, Aaron Sorkin wrote and directed Molly's Game in 2017, um, adapted from Molly Bloom's memoir, and uh, Spielberg loved it, and after seeing it, he said, hey, Aaron, you should you should direct the Chicago 7 movie, and uh, so he did. Yeah, um, I suppose at the point that Steven Spielberg tells you you should direct this movie you wrote, <laughs> you just go ahead and direct the movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sounds good, Steve. Thanks, buddy. Um, <laughs> uh, and also, you know, at the time, um, Sorkin thought that a lot of the movie was newly relevant again because, you know, uh, as a candidate, Donald Trump, and as president, even after his candidacy, he said a lot of uh, incendiary things about protesters and violence against protesters in 2016 and 2017 mm-hmm. and beyond. So uh, Sorkin thought that the movie was more relevant again, even though it's a 50-year-old story. And uh, then in post-production, the movie got even more relevant because in the summer of 2020, uh, protests broke out across the United States, really across the world, uh, in the wake of the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Arbery, among others. And uh, apparently, actually, Sorkin, uh, he was in the edit when, when this all went down this past summer, and he uh, moved some things around in the movie to um, maybe reflect reflect what was going on in the real world. Uh, apparently, he added more to the uh, Fred Hampton stuff, which I guess we can get into later. Um, yeah. I, I want to put a, I want to put a pin in that though the uh, the modern day relevance of the movie because I want to discuss that in more depth. But you know, just that is that is there uh, surface yeah. level stuff. Uh, as I mentioned, this was originally to be distributed by Paramount in the fall of 2020, but uh, again, with what was going on in 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic, uh, theaters were closed, so they saw the writing on the wall and sold the movie to Netflix um, in June. And Netflix distributed this in, I guess, November, October-ish? I can't remember when this came out. I think it was November. I can't remember exactly. Um, Yeah, uh, around there. And apparently it opened in a few theaters where theaters were open, but um, nowhere near me. Because it had to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's true. Well, it didn't actually happen. At the time that they released, the movie released, they weren't aware that the deadline was being pushed back yet. It's not even that the deadline was pushed back, but the theatrical... Uh, window exhibition rule. Well, no, the exhibition rule is no longer in play for the Oscars this year. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's what I was talking about. I thought that they that, that didn't. Well. I, did, I thought the news about that didn't come out until after this movie had released. Well, the the actual theatrical exhibition rule at the Oscars is that a movie has to play for at least seven continuous days in Los Angeles County right. in the year yeah. of release, and. Mm-hmm. This never played in Los Angeles County because there's no theaters open oh, in Los yeah. Angeles County, as far as I know. So I'm pretty sure the theatrical exhibition rule for the Oscars was either suspended for 2020 or changed to include, mm-hmm. I don't know, other locations. Because New again, York. nothing. <laughs> maybe New York. Well, actually, I know they definitely changed the rule to include LA and New York. I think that might have been pre pandemic, though, they changed yeah. that rule, but uh, that doesn't matter. Regardless, Regardless it's displayed. eligible. <laughs> yes, it is eligible for Oscars, and it is, I think, probably gonna get a lot of nominations um i have on the outline a discussion of this movie's oscar chances but it's gonna it's gonna be a a big player i would think um so yeah uh before before we talked about uh what we all thought of this i wanted to first ask how familiar you guys were with the uh real life trial because again this is based on an actual trial that took place in i guess what 69 1969 70 Mm -hmm. um with with real people yeah 
And uh, I I knew nothing about this trial. I'd, I'd never heard of the Chicago 7. I'd never heard of Tom Hayden or Abby Hoffman or Bobby Seale before this movie. And maybe that's a that's probably on me, but maybe it's also a uh, shortcoming of our American education system. But um, uh, what, what about you? Uh, Hugo, I would think you would not have heard of much of this because you're I... not... American, but what, what do you but got? I had I had heard of Bobby Seal as the head of a Black Panther uh, party. Sure. Yeah. Well, I didn't know exactly when, but it was a name that was was known to me, and I knew he was around around the time of the Martin Luther King assassination. Um, but that's because I did I did a semester I did a course I, I had to read a book on Martin Luther King, so um, I, I kind of had some incidental knowledge about some mm-hmm. of that stuff because of that. And I did. I had heard of the riots at the DNC convention uh, when when they after the Kennedy assassination, but I, I didn't know right. about the trial specifically. No, I, I guess I should say I might have known about the fact that there were riots at the DNC convention in '68, yeah. but also like that's just I w- completely expected. Like the Vietnam War is going on, Dick Nixon was about to get elected. Like, of course there were mm-hmm. protests, protests and riots. Sure. Like that just makes complete sense to me. So I don't know. Maybe I just never internalized that. Um, I think that's what it was in for Europe. me. Yeah, 69 in Europe is a year when uh, there were riots everywhere, in every country. And so it's kind of part of our history that we know, and we all know that they were also in reaction to the Vietnam War. So we all know that some riots happened in the United States before they started over here. So it's kind of a, a it's kind of a period in time. We have a generation sixty nine. What is what it's called? It's, it's a generation of students who at the time were involved in all these protests. Protests. Yeah, makes sense. So, so for yeah. me, I knew of the protests and and the riot, uh, but on like kind of a surface level, it was one of those, I knew it mm-hmm. happened, but I I didn't know any of the details. I knew Tom Hayden was a congressman, but had never put together that he was involved with the riots. That was another thing. And that... A congressman and Mr. Jane Fonda for a, yeah, and, yes. a long and, yeah. time. Yeah. Sorry, one second, guys. Sure. Sorry about that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and so, uh, like you said, Mr. Jane, Mr. Jane Fonda as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I knew who Tom Hayden was, uh, and I knew Bobby Seale as, you know, uh, the from the Black Panther Party, right? Bobby Seale's uh, still around, by the way. He's still, he's still mm-hmm. alive. Uh, yeah. And then uh, I didn't put this on the out- outline, but I, I remembered uh, uh, Abby Hoffman from his book. Like I didn't, mm. I never read yeah. the book or anything, but that was just a fun fact about the book, and I had heard that fun fact yeah. before, which was that uh, he later wrote a book called "Steal This Book." And right. so the fun yeah. fact is that there's no I, people don't have any idea how many books were actually purchased or you know are in circulation Stoned. because <laughs> people stole the book. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it? Which band in the '90s had an album called "Steal This Album"? Was it System of a Down or Rage Against the Machine? One of those bands had an album called "Steal This Album," which I guess is a reference a to reference. "Steal This Book." Yeah, Abby Hoffman. That's the thing. Like, I, I, I knew a few names from this movie just from like pop culture references. Like, I learned a lot System about of a Fred... down. Okay, for System of a Down. There you go. I learned a lot about Fred Hampton just from 2020 movies, uh, more than I ever knew about the guy before this. Because before 2020, I think the only thing I knew about Fred Hampton is that he's name dropped in a Rage Against the Machine song. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you know, there's multiple movies about Fred Hampton where he appears in 2020 um, that are all very good. Uh, the first time I watched this movie, uh, Chicago Seven, I watched it with my in-laws, and both of them seemed to know exactly who Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman were. And this case, they even like knew things about the judge in this case. So 
that was like mm. indicative to me that like oh this is like something people know about this isn't like an obscure story that uh no. we're watching here so i'm 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 in minority here i'm not in the know yeah if my I, mean, in-laws I mean know about this this is a, a function of our age you know mm-hmm. but like it was i talked to my my dad about this movie as well and yeah he confirmed that it was all over the news for yeah. weeks I, I think i think <laughs> In in our defense, or really in my defense for not knowing much about this trial, I think that this falls into the sweet spot of, you know, kind of in between history and memory, where, yeah. like, it's not necessarily taught in classes because a lot of people are alive that still remember it, so why would you teach it in a history class? But, like, yeah. I don't know, my parents weren't around yet, or they were, like, little little kids when this trial happened, so, like, I don't know, I never talked to anybody about the trial of Chicago 7 before, um, mm-hmm. so, I don't know, uh, I- I'm glad this movie exists, and now that's more stuff for me to learn about, I guess. Yeah. Um, so let's let's get into the movie itself. Um, Grizz, again, it was your number one for the year. So, but I want to I want to start with Hugo. Hugo, what do, what do you think in general about Trial of Chicago Seven? So I'm conflicted on it because mm-hmm. um, it, it's a movie that, upon a first watch, just just in terms of uh, the film that it is in a vacuum, I thought was excellently made. Uh, the dialogue unsurprisingly is brilliant mm-hmm. uh the acting is fantastic and standouts for me from in, in every role there's there's at least one scene that i can think of oh that was a great scene with that actor um but it's also a movie that uh, the more i think about it and the more I, I, like i spent today i spent three hours reading about the actual trial and ways in which the movie is accurate and non-accurate um it kind of brought the movie down a little bit for me because I, I think mm. uh, a, a, in order to deliver kind of um, unifying message of um, we can all be better, we're all we're all Americans, we can uplift each other and uh, we can do better than this. Uh, I think the movie kind of sanitized some of, uh, some of the more radical um, elements of this story Um there are also some changes that kind of uh, rubbed me the wrong way a little bit, um, particularly with the ending and with how Bobby Seale is portrayed. Not necessarily him, because his the performance is really accurate. I also saw some videos and it's incredibly accurate and a fantastic performance. But the scene in which he's gagged is uh, has a different context from what it had in real life, from mm-hmm. the transcripts um, and the ending with... Um, the reading of the, the the soldiers kind of we'll, we'll get to um, we'll get to the yeah we'll get to, we'll get to it <laughs> but it, there are some changes that kind of um, I won't say I still think the movie is really well made um, but it it kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit yeah. as if it, Sorkin was trying to kind of um, give it a unifying message that I don't think the story necessarily has I, I agree with you that I think the people who take issue with the movie that I think you hit the two biggest parts, which is the Bobby seal stuff and the ending. Yeah. And, uh, we can talk about both of them. Uh, I definitely yeah. have the ending on the outline here. Mm-hmm. Um, before we do that though, Grizz, I want to hear what you like about this movie and I'll talk about why, what I like about it too. So, I mean, just right off the bat, I, I've said this before. I love Aaron Sorkin's writing. Me too. He is my, mm-hmm. he's probably, I could probably safely say that he is my favorite writer, uh, for, for screenwriting. Uh, mm. So just that alone is going to elevate this movie some for me. But I also loved the time at which this released. Like I, Finding out after the fact that Aaron Sorkin reworked some of it to make it more poignant, uh, to match the events of the world going around us, I actually really love that. 
it's possible that it made it a little less accurate to the actual timeline of events in reality. But I think the, the point of a movie like this isn't just to tell you the story of the trial of the Chicago seven. It's to show you that we're still fighting these same battles today. And Hmm. that, you know, we have to eventually learn from these things and, and move forward instead of just continuing to repeat it. So this, you know, this movie serves as, as a sort of a reminder that uh, we haven't made the progress we think we have. We've, we might have made some progress, but the fact that these things are still happening uh, and the way and people are being mistreated, protesters are being portrayed as rioters, you know, when they're not necessarily rioters. That's not to say that there mm-hmm. aren't actual rioters out there, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Think, things yeah. get blown out of proportion by the media, by the police, by the government, whatever it is. And this movie... Uh, illustrates that we're you know those were the tactics then they're the tactics now and you need to be aware of it and, uh, yeah and may, maybe our justice system isn't as objective or blind as we sometimes like to sell it as you know and yeah one of the other reasons that, this movie is works so well for me is probably one of the reasons that it doesn't work for hugo is that i like the general air of optimism that aaron sorkin's writing tends to have uh mm-hmm. so this movie is about a very serious subject uh, and it's tragic in a lot of in, in a lot of it, and you know there's not a whole lot to be happy about. There's gross miscarriage of justice throughout this whole movie, <laughs> and you, the fact that you can still come out of that and still feel like like okay, but there's still hope. Like we can change things. That's something this movie does for me that that I really like. Yeah, and I mean I, I agree with everything you're, you're saying there, and you're even talking about you know, stuff beyond the text, you know, kind of subtext and, and context. But I think like the text of the movie itself is also uh, really worked yeah. for me uh, largely, at least, you know, uh, you already mentioned the writing. I think the writing's great. Um, I think that the, the, the pacing and the editing are both great. Uh, I think that we can talk about, you know, Sorkin in general later on, but like, I think Sorkin's really cooking when he is uh, cross cutting between events described and the events themselves. And we have like several sequences where, uh, in this movie, we have testimony in the courtroom, Abby Hoffman doing like his stand-up routine, and so like you have two different people telling the story of what happened, and then also showing the story like what's actually what actually happened. happened. Uh, yeah, so like you have like yeah. cutting between three things, and like the movie's really cooking. Then there's like a few sequences where that happens, and uh, other movies in Sorkin's career, he's really cooking when he's doing that kind of thing, and um, this movie kind of like lets him do that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, outside it, of the... Go I was ahead. gonna say on that note, if those scenes offer. Uh, in addition to exposition and you know showing how the stories differ between all these different viewpoints, it also adds that little opportunity for some Sorkin humor. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> particularly uh, with uh, Abby Hoffman. Particularly with Abby yeah. Hoffman. <laughs> but I mean, like like you just alluded there, different perspectives. Like Abby Hoffman's view of events is different from who's ever on the stand testifying their view of events, which is probably different than what we're seeing actually portrayed in the events themselves. Yeah. So it's it's uh it's really good stuff. Um. Edited, edited by, I have the editor's name later. I'll, I'll name drop him later. Um, I also think the uh, performances are great. Uh, Hugo, you mentioned the performances. You have the performances on the outline. Um, yeah. I, I'm not a, I'm not the biggest fan of uh, Eddie Redmayne, as I've mentioned this podcast before. But he's mm-hmm. he's really really great in this. He's I've he's never seen great. him better than this, and he's got an Oscar Best Actor. I think he's better than this than he was in Theory of Everything. Um, Yahya Abdul Medin as Bobby Seale is great. Yeah. Uh, I. I I think it's complicated how much he's in this and how some people wish he's in this more, but also like you want to make the 
make the story true to life, but also like what part mm-hmm. of the trial do you want to focus? I don't know. We you can get into that later. But yeah, 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 Abdul Mateen. For how much of the movie he's in, he's he's excellent. Um, yeah, he definitely Shadow steals Ka- scenes. He certainly oh, does. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the most uh, acclaimed performance and probably the most likely one to get an Oscar nomination is um, Sasha Baron Cohen as Evan Hoffman. Um, 100%. He takes the stand as like the, the last trial scene of the movie is Abby Hoffman on the stand. And that's maybe my favorite scene. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting how much Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden uh, played by Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne, how they're kind of both like in the back pocket of this movie. And mm-hmm. neither one really has a ton to do until like the last 15, 20 minutes. Uh, they're kind of just like, they kind of just like yeah. set both of them up and then just like kind of set them aside for a while. But uh, when they do finally come back into play, I think is like probably the, the movie's strongest scenes. Um, but also, I want to yeah. shout out Mark Mark Rylance as the defense lawyer. Fantastic, uh, always. He, he kind of, I think, is. I mean, as the defense attorney, he kind of is like guiding the ship. He's kind of like if yep. if this movie has a narrator, it's him. He is kind of mm-hmm. just like guiding us along through the whole story. And also, uh, shout out to John Carroll Lynch, who plays David Derringer. David just Derringer. A, great character actor who i love and everything hugo you have a finger up go ahead yeah and if i can just shout out frank langella who plays josh oh, Judge yeah. hoffman Absolutely, i think yeah. he's like for me he was the standout performance with the ayah abdul mateen because like he plays this horrible horrible human being but he does it so well and according to some 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 reading that i've done some articles he's apparently really accurate to what the the actual judge was and how the actual judge acted in court and um that's one of the best parts of the movie for me like the portrayal of this judge who is just a horrible human and does anything he can to undermine the the defense was was great both in uh, writing and in performance. Well, and one of the things I like about the portrayal of this judge is that there's there's moments where it feels like the judge is being purposefully obtuse, and then yeah. there's other moments where it's like he is he just an old man, and, <laughs> <laughs> and is not entirely cognizant of what what's yeah. going on. At and that's kind point, of what you, that's one of the points that they drive at in this whole movie is that you know they they, they can't really tell how to handle this judge because he's so. You know, neither here at, nor yeah. there. <laughs> at one point, mm-hmm. Mark Rylance's character says, uh, I want to get a geriatric, geriatric psychologist in the courtroom yeah. <laughs> to mock <laughs> this judge, um, which is good. Um, yeah. And the last thing I want to mention uh, of for things that I like about the movie is the, the ideolo- ideological conflict at the heart of the movie, which is really an ideological conflict between Eddie, uh, Eddie Redmayne's Tom Hayden character and uh, Abby Hoffman. But I want to put yep. a pin in that and discuss that later. And... Let's move on to uh, what didn't work as well. Um, Hugo, you already mentioned a few things. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, go ahead. Go ahead. What you ha- what you have here in the outline for what didn't work um, as well for you? Okay. Just uh, from a filmmaking standpoint, I I I do think uh, in terms of direction, it's kind of traditional, uh, well made. There's no uh, giant stroke of genius. I think all all the best things about the movie in terms of how it's made are in the script. Um, and you know, it, it's only the second movie that Sorkin has directed. So it, you know, it, I don't think is a huge like uh, problem with the film, but I'm just saying it, the direction itself, I don't think adds much to, to, to the film. I don't think it does anything special that you notice. Um, I mean, the, 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 for this the, particular, 
So the, the cross cutting, fantastic. the cross cutting I mentioned yeah. that that is partially the director, you know. I agree. Setting I, that up, I, so. I can see, I can totally see that. But I also yeah. think that um, that is something that is in Sorkin's writing quite a lot. So it it's is true. on, it is on the paper. It's not necessarily a a decision that they made afterwards. Like it, it is a stylistic thing that he has uh, in his writing. Right. Um, and. And yeah, and for me, the stuff that that didn't necessarily work is is in the way that the movie is about a true story, um, and in the ways that it kind of um, deviates from it uh, in the attempt to deliver a message that uh, I, I don't think the story by itself uh, would necessarily deliver. And I'm in in my mind while while I was watching this, and particularly after the ending, I was thinking, oh. Um, what if the same story was directed by Ava DuVernay, for example, or Steve McQueen or, or Spike Lee? Like this would be not just not just because of the Yayoub Dumontine's character, but just in general, I think this would be a much, much different movie with a different message. Um, and I'm wondering if sticking to the events would have made it a bit too radical for Sorkin's sensibilities and politics. If you know what, what I mean. What kind of movie do you think Ava DuVernay or Steve McQueen would have made? I first of all, I think. Um, are we into spoilers completely? Or? I can put spoilers on. Uh, I mean, we've been talking yeah. for twenty minutes. We can go into spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. Yeah. I, <laughs> first of all, I okay. The one of the big changes in the film is uh, at the end, uh, the the convicted are the the judge says, "Oh, you can give a final statement, uh, and then I will give you my." Uh, sentence and and then we have the big scene at the end which is dramatically works really well uh, of them reading out the names of uh, all the american soldiers that were killed uh, in vietnam uh, in the roughly 200 days of the tr- that the trial had been going on um mm-hmm. and i first of all the scene did this this did happen kind of during the trial but it didn't happen at the end of the trial which is not what bothered me. I, I don't mind them because I do understand that it's a movie. You have to make it, uh, you know, dramatically uh, satisfying as an ending. So I understand why they moved the scene of them reading the names out at the end. Um, what I I have I had a bit of a, a bit of an issue with was first of all that in real in 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 the real trial they read both the American and the Vietnam uh, deaths, uh, mm-hmm. Vietnamese deaths. So as if to say. Um, what they wanted to say is not we're all united as Americans. It, uh, it, it was we're all united as humans and we are against this war that is killing both Americans and Vietnamese people. Right. Um, and also uh, the fact that they added, they changed uh, the Schultz character, which is the, the, the main prosecutor um, played by yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, in a good Joseph Gordon-Levitt performance, but they changed his character to be more sympathetic and... In reality, he wasn't. Um, he did not stand up uh, to respect uh, the fallen as he does in the film. Um, you know, he he di- he wasn't in the film. He's portrayed as being the one that uh, suggests that Bobby Seale's trial should be severed from the other uh, Chicago Seven because originally they were the Chicago Eight, and then they they're left with Seven. He did not do that. Uh, in fact, uh, it was Kunstler who suggested it, uh, played by Mike Rylance, and. Um, Schultz, the prosecutor, actually said that it was an obvious ploy and a mockery of of the court. So his character was very different. Um, he was not a, necessarily a sympathetic character in the story at all. And so I feel it's, like they... it's 
it sounds like you just take issue with a lot of the creative licenses that the movie I, takes, and you, you think that Spike Lee or Steve McQueen or Ava DuVernay wouldn't have taken those licenses? I, yeah, because I, I think the message would have been different at the end. The message is, oh, look what they're doing to these people. What Look what the system is doing to these people who are trying to make the system better and look at what is still happening today. And I don't think there would have been the unifying message of, uh, we all stand up for the fallen and uh, we'll make a better society together. Um, I, I don't think that's what the Chicago seven believed at the time. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it fit because again, in a vacuum is if this was a fictional film, um, I would really like this message. I would really like the way it was portrayed and I would think it was excellent. And, but because it, it takes a real story in which that did not happen and adds in this element, I think it, it kind of detracted from, from my general enjoyment of the film. Do yeah, I mean, take issue with other movies that take creative license on historical events. I uh, I do if if the creative license is in service of changing the theme that can be uh, taken from the story. So hold that's, on, Be- that's you, when I, it kind of bothers me. So you just mentioned the theme there. You you guys both have referenced the fact that the the ending of this. In, indicates a theme that we are all Americans in this together. I, I take yeah. a little bit of issue with that. I think that is, um, that's a very literal interpretation of what Tom <clears throat> Hayden does in the ending. There, I think what really the theme is is it's, um, it's finding courage because Tom Hayden yeah. the entire movie is really in damage control mode. He's like showing up to the trial, trying to keep his head down, be respectful. He very notably stands for Judge Hoffman when everyone else, you know, remains seated for him. Yep. And uh, in the scene where him and Kunstler go see Ramsey Clark, uh, Michael Keaton's character, he does say to him, sir, you need to find some courage. And mm-hmm. he's obviously talking about himself there, really. Yep. And the one courageous thing he does the entire movie is to say, uh, what happens to me be damned, the cause is more important than me. And that's the one time he he takes an action that reflects that is when he reads the name, uh, reads the names and hurts his own sentencing recommendation probably. And, uh, finds his principles. I think that's really more the point. And the yeah. fact that he's literally reading names just kind of, yeah, that's important also. But like from a thematic standpoint, I, I think that that's really the theme they're going for is finding courage. The cause is bigger I, than you, uh, that kind of stuff. I get it, but, but they changed what the cause was. In to some extent, that's what I that I, that's what the the movie made me feel. Because I, again, I I don't necessarily think um, the, the even the change of not doing the Vietnamese names, as small as it may seem, it it does kind of betray a very American retelling and point of view of this story, which is an American story, of course, and and that's fine. But it's just. Um, it's not it's not what happened, and it changes the meaning of what happened to some extent. Like well, the people a- who see this movie and haven't read about it are going to think this is exactly what happened. You know, a lot of people don't do the research and don't go look up exactly what it was. And you know, yeah, putting I, in I, disagree, this I think that's character, true. Of, that's true of every movie that is based on a true yeah. story. It is. Yeah, it's absolutely. right at the front that this movie is not the true story. It's based not on like a that. true story. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> an issue an issue I have with the ending is that it's kind of 
it's kind of saccharine is what I put in the yeah. outline. It's the word I use. It's a little overly sentimental mm-hmm. and sweet. The the soaring mm-hmm. score. Um, yeah. Uh, people applauding. Are, yes. Uh, that's that's the thing. Is like people are standing and applauding. Realistically speaking, if he continued reading forty seven hundred names at the rate he's going, it would have taken like four to six hours, I would think. Yeah. So there's no like that's they they cut away and cut to black before you kind of yeah. before the ridiculousness of what ri- ridiculousness of what he's doing really hits you. Yeah. They leave you yeah. on the soaring sentimentality note rather than like this is actually kind of okay. You've made your the point. wrong word, no. but yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but also you know he, so Hugo that what, I say all that to to bring up the fact that like i kind of understand that that probably didn't actually happen because someone reading yeah. reading well, names for four hours is, during the sensing thing is, it did it did happen he just that's he, the thing but it didn't david happen Derring- that way david, we know that it david didn't happen Derringer. That way. it didn't happen that way david derringer read the names in october so like a month or yeah. two into the trial it wasn't read by tom hayden at the end of the yeah. trial so i mean w- what do you make of the fact that they had tom hayden read the names and not david derringer like what I, do you make of that change i don't mind that i, I think why not the I don't necessarily mind that. My my but, problem but why? is not. What? Sorry. Why don't so, you? Why doesn't that why bother do, you? Why don't? Yeah. I mean, other changes bother you, but that one doesn't. Uh, I, again, I don't mind the creative license of changing what the story is. What bothers me a bit is when the changes um, are to either sanitize what the politics of the actual story were, or change somewhat change the message. Of just read if you watch the documentary of the story, the message that you would get from it is not the message that the movie leaves you with. That's where the change kind of annoyed me a bit. So I think, sure. for me, what it comes down to is that you are perceiving this movie as the message is being about the value of human life, and that's not to say that it that's not a part of it. But I think that this is a story about uh, protesters, you know, and yes. and the way in which people should react to those protests that a protest mm-hmm. isn't a an act of insurrection yeah. it's an attempt to correct the path that the country mm-hmm. is going down right uh so i think the message your voice is, heard yeah it's about getting getting the voice heard and yeah. that's why i think the, especially they're reading at the end reading the names at the end uh to me it doesn't matter that they didn't you know, they changed it. They didn't include the Vietnamese uh, deaths, and they changed it. Tom Hayden did it because the message is that uh, this trial that they've been put on is t- distracting from the message. The message is that you can't let the message get distracted. Mm. <laughs> that's a good point, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's what I took from it. And those parts, I think, work really well. I just think it. it I think the Chicago 7 would were more... Uh, let's say on More the left radical. of this message than than they were portrayed as being and and yes. i also think that that the prosecution side was much more hostile towards them than they were portrayed is it possible being. that this is designed uh to make the overall message more palatable to people who don't normally agree with protesters and yes. is there not some inherent value in making 100%. a message that yeah. people who normally would see protesters of any kind and be like what are these troublemakers doing? Instead, yeah. they now get to see him like, oh, okay, well, so... I, well, I, I do think there is value. I just think it misrepresents what those specific protesters uh, wanted and so, believed. Okay. Real That's quick, we're, we're dancing on something. I want to talk about the movie's politics. Yes. Uh, let's, and let's and we that. can, but, but before we do that, real quick, I just want to mention one last thing about the ending, and that mm-hmm. is... Um, 
Hugo, you want to maybe... You wish that this was more true to life. Well, what was actually said in the trial during the sentencing recommendation um, is uh, pretty interesting. I'm going to read the quote here. So, uh, Rennie Davis, who uh, I don't even know the actor's name who plays Rennie Davis. I apologize, Rennie Davis. Um, I have it right here. Uh, Rennie Davis. Played by? Alex Sharp. Alex Sharp. Uh, Doesn't have a whole lot to do in this movie, but uh, good job with what you're given. Very uh, good at writing names in a book. Excellent. So, in in real life... (laughs) In real life, Rennie Davis did say to Judge Hoffman during sentencing, quote, You represent all that is old, ugly, bigoted, and repressive in this country, and I will tell you that the spirit of this defense table will devour your sickness in the next generation. Holy yes. shit. That's, yeah. that's cool. That, um, yeah. And uh, Jason Bailey, who wrote the review in the New York Times, he cited that quote as, uh, quote, the most Sorkin-esque dialogue in the transcript, and he said that not including it in the film was, quote, downright baffling. And, uh, and I agree. I, I think, yeah, Hugo would agree to that. I would um, I mean, I agree to an extent, but also, like, you know, it, I haven't said this yet. Hugo kind of alluded to it. The, the ending makes narrative sense. Yes. Even if it doesn't make, uh, even if it's not completely satisfying in terms of, like, getting a history lesson mm-hmm. or um, what you hope this movie would be kind of, uh, you know, the conclusion it would end on. Um, it, mm-hmm. it may not be satisfying for some people in that sense, but it is narratively satisfying. It, it is it is set up, and it, it is payoff to a setup. Like I said, um, yep. you know, Tom Hayden spends the whole movie in damage control, and then at the ending he decides, you know, my my future be damned, the cause is what's matter, what matters. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that quote from Ray Davis would have been really great here, and it is yep. a very Sorkin quote, but it doesn't quite fit the story he was telling. Go ahead, Greer, sorry. So with that quote... And, and this is why I think that it, it would have, it could have fit, is because one thing that Sorkin does in a lot of his shows and movies is takes the quiet, reserved character who is always level-headed, always in control, and they have that one moment where they break and exclaim something like this, quote. And I feel like they could have worked that in, and it would have been a very powerful moment for a character like Rennie. Well, yeah. he does that in this movie, but he does it with Tom Hayden instead, who's reserved mm-hmm. and level-headed and... Yep. I think the we difference though is that Tom Hayden is re- reserved and level-headed in terms of like when they're preparing the protests and everything. In the courtroom, Tom Hayden is terrified. He does not want to go to prison. He's um, quiet too. He's and he is quiet. But like it's, I think it comes from a place of I just got to get through this. So you know, to, if I have any chance of not going to prison here, whereas right. Rennie is level-headed and is constantly still focused the entire time on what they're actually there for. Which yeah, was, I'm not, you know, the message. So I think, I think it could have been a very powerful moment. I agree. I, I'm not saying Rennie's not level-headed. I'm saying Tom Hayden is the quiet reserve guy, and the one time he loses his cool is actually during the protest, not yeah, in the courtroom. Starts, starts the riots. Yeah, <laughs> uh, to an extent, allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. Um, but okay, uh, on the topic of Tom Hayden, I think that the um, Hugo, I think that you're right that it, the movie does kind of sanitize some of the the politics of those involved. Uh, I think. Um, I would assume that these characters were further left than the movie portrays, uh, particularly Tom Hayden, because I yes. think that the the movie kind of the central conflict in the movie is an ideological conflict between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, as I mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. Tom Hayden, at least as portrayed, represents more of an establishment, um, yep. kind of liberalism, uh, yep. maybe like a like a more of a more closer to center as opposed yep. to you know as opposed to Abby Hoffman, who is 
you know, hippy dippy, far left radical kind of guy. And the, uh, you know, their, their ideological conflict is set up in the first 20 or so minutes. Actually, it's set up before the credits even. And then mm-hmm. it comes to a head in the movie's climax uh, in the last last third. But um, whether or not those two were actually, like, butting heads, I don't think that's actually true. But, you know, it's just what, you know, the drama... Kind of a dramatization. I don't, I don't think yeah, that they were, exactly. like, that involved with each other. Like, obviously, they were aware with each other and they were at the event events together. But I think, the whole, like, the whole point is that they are representing different groups. And yes. so, like, they're involved only so much as they have some shared goals, but the way mm-hmm. they go about it are completely different. So I really don't think that like, you know, Abby Hoffman and, and, uh, Tom Hayden, I don't, I don't, I doubt that they actually interacted that much enough to form no, a I, budding yeah. heads relationship. Right. right. <laughs> well, maybe so, they would, because the thing is the budding head relationship happens during the trial and what they are arguing in their defense is saying, uh, we were part of separate groups but we happened to agree on this one thing, which was the Vietnam War specifically, and that's why we're here to protest. But we're protesting for different groups, different reasons, uh, you know, different ideologies. Uh, and so the point is, we didn't, we weren't very involved with each other before the trial started. We're not the Chicago Seven. You, the prosecutor, are arguing we have we are committing conspiracy to to right. to, to what it what was and so it, you're saying that maybe they butted heads after the trial had they, began so they butted heads during the trial because yeah. at that point they have to be involved with each other because they're defending together I, but I see that, that I, I honestly i think that like i'm granted i've not been, i'm not a lawyer i haven't been to many criminal trials of any kind or anything <laughs> like that but my understanding of it is that you know after the that day in court they're not going home together they're not all hanging out at the clubhouse sharing their thoughts on the day they're going to their respective homes and going to bed you know what like you know they're not well this movie portrays them as being together all the time all the time yeah <laughs> and that i just true. i doubt that that is how it was <laughs> yeah well so about the movie's politics real quick i wanted to say that um i i think that if i think that there's surface level politics in this movie and maybe mm-hmm. if you um either are more right-leaning yourself or you aren't don't have like the uh, the knowledge of the inner workings of the you know democratic left wing infighting, you may see just the surface level politics of this, yep. which is you know uh, Vietnam War bad, police brutality bad, um, et cetera, et cetera, Richard Nixon bad, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a more uh, there's a deeper, more nuanced political discussion in the movie. But it's just kind of isolated to like which left wing philosophy uh, works more, I guess. And yep. um, I-, I think that. We're going to talk about Oscar chances later, but I think that the surface level politics of this is something that um, kind of turned me off a little bit because it's it's kind of it's a little overly simplistic. Grizz, you said that the movie is positioning you in, in such a way, positioning the audience in such a way that it is immediately on the side of the protesters, and it it really does do that. It it the opening the opening image. You guys know I love opening images and opening lines. Yes, yeah. it's uh it's Lyndon Johnson announcing uh greater troop sending more troops to Vietnam and then it shows a sequence of like letters being put into mailboxes as people get their draft notices. Uh, opening your movie with that, particularly 50 years after Vietnam, um, really puts the audience in a place where like, Oh, th- that stuff happening is bad. Uh, no one's going to yep. think that that's like a good thing. So yeah. people protesting that must be good. And I'm on their side immediately. Um, before, you know, any of the violence in the protest happens, you are automatically implicitly on the protester side because the movie opens that way. Um, and it has 50 years of, of hindsight to open that way. Um, but I, I think that 
and there's nothing there's nothing like inherently wrong with that like just being like a you know i guess this isn't really an anti-vietnam war movie that's i mean it is but it's not that's kind of overly simplistic but i think it's um, more pro-expression of your views yes than anti and and (laughs) a vietnam war protest is like the setting of that you know I, i you know it's easy to get bogged down in the specifics but like that's it's kind of just set dressing. It could be about anything, but it's really about, you know, again, finding courage and the message and, and protest and blah, 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 blah. Um, I think that the Academy 10 years ago would have been more likely to give a movie like this best picture. Um, yes. Something like something easy and simple with like easily digestible left leaning politics. You know, again, Nixon yeah. bad, Vietnam bad, police brutality bad. Um, and also kind of left, if, if I may it say. It is. Kind of it's, American it's, left. It's, it's left definitely of center, but also like it's, <laughs> it's American it's le- left. It's left of center, yeah. but in like a very digestible way. Again, yes. it's not hard to say the Vietnam War was bad, and people protesting yeah. the draft were like you know probably it, right to do yeah. that. Um, it's it's but, presented in a way so that moderates can accept it more. Correct. Um, yes, that's what. It, yeah. But for me, I think that the the deeper f- political discussions in the movie between Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden are the movie's greatest asset. And I agree. they're kind of reserved for, again, the last like 20 minutes. They kind of just like are set up, set aside, the trial happens. And then like in the like the smoking gun of the trial is a recording of Tom Hayden that would absolutely not exist at all. And it's kind of dumb that they like I realize that they need to like put a big dramatic moment with Tom Hayden in the in the climax of the movie. But the way they do it is kind of lazy for me. Just like, oh, we found this recording uh, who yeah, was recording? It, I don't know. Where were they? I don't know. How do we get this tape? I don't know. But I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't matter. It's um, very, it's very uh, convenient that all the pieces fall into place the way that they do, uh, yeah. which is not. I don't think it's bad because I think it makes for a very entertaining script and viewing experience. But it, you know, it real life isn't always that precise polished and yeah. and concise. Yeah. So I, I, I've been rambling. Do you guys have anything else in the politics or the ending? Uh, I, I agree with you that uh, the most interesting political discussion the movie is having is is uh, the the different sides of the left and how which side are we are we actually allies are we not um, it, is my way of of doing things better um, is is your kind of more central style of of protest where you don't want to antagonize anyone but you still want to have the protest uh, the best way to do it or or is you know, is Abby's view that, oh, if, if the police charges us, there's cameras and people will see the police doing this and mm-hmm. they will be on our side. Is that, you know, because, for example, that's what Martin Luther King did. Um, he was completely nonviolent, but he knew that if there were going to be violence, the police were going to start it and the cameras were going to be there. So it it, it can be a tactic uh, of left-leading, you know, protests. But I think that's the most nuanced conversation that the movie is starting to is trying to start, and and I agree with you on that. Yeah, that yeah, was I thought really it, good stuff. I thought it was great. And it was very well done too. Uh, yes. I, I, like we said, like most of a lot of the politics of this film is very surface level. I personally yep. don't mind that, uh, especially when you consider the audience, which is the entire world. Uh, mm-hmm. Not everyone cares about politics as deeply as you or I do, Hugo, as we're both political mm-hmm. science students. I, I, Josh, were you poli sci in college? I don't even remember. 
uh, my major was aerospace engineering. Well, that's right. So aerospace. like, just like, <laughs> related to poli sci, but like a little just little tangential. You know, yeah. Not yeah. not all. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, not everyone is is gonna care as as deeply about the political stuff as other people might. And so I don't mind that. And in fact, I respect that it's surface level because that's about as much as most people are going to be willing to delve into the politics. But mm. then they do have this deeper level that people who do care a little bit more about can, can dive into. And the performances in those regards are excellent. Tom Hayden in this movie, again, I don't know about him as the actual Tom Hayden, but Tom Hayden in this movie represents central left very yep. accurately, especially yep. for that time period. And Abby Hoffman you know, is the extreme left. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, they do, the performances are excellent and they are done in such a way that you actually are able to find things to like about both of them, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is what I do like. Although I do think there's, honestly, I think Abby Hoffman is more likable through the whole movie oh, yeah. than Tom Hayden by a significant Very much so. so. Very much so. <laughs> which I think might also be another tactic to make the far left more palatable <laughs> for yeah. people is that he, he's so much more likable. I wonder how much of that is uh, in the performance. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Is, yeah. you know, Eddie Redmayne is playing Tom Hayden as a very straight-laced guy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so in that regard, he excels because Tom Hayden is vanilla. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but, um, and then Sasha Barry Cohen, obviously playing Abby Hoffman, is playing... He's basically playing Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> to an extent, he's going for it. That trickster. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I want to talk about this movie's Oscar chances, then we can close the book on Chicago 7. But before I do that, I just want to mention real quick, just because we alluded to it a few times, is uh, Bobby Seale in this movie. Yeah. First of all, Yaya Abdul-Mateen is uh, excellent in this. Uh, high, one of the highlights in the movie. Yeah, and him I, in every movie. He's yeah, for amazing. Sure. And uh, shout out to Kelvin Harrison Jr. as, as Fred Hampton as well. Um, I think that, you know, this movie is a movie about the trial of the Chicago seven, uh, you know, and in that story, Bobby Seale is certainly a part of that story, but you know, only to an extent. And I think that to to the extent that he is not part of the Chicago seven. True. Yes. (laughs) But I think, I think the movie it's, it's, I'm not sure what the right answer is, but like it, there's, there's a give and take of how much Bobby Seale should or shouldn't be in this movie. I think mm-hmm. everyone seems to agree that he is one of the strongest uh, elements of, of the movie. Like his scenes work really well. His Yaya Abdul-Mateen's performance works really well. Um, Hugo, it sounds like you wanted the story to be more about him, uh, but no, maybe, not necessarily. Maybe not. not necessarily. I, I thought, the amount that he was in it was uh, was fine for what this story is because it's the trial of the Chicago Seven, yes. and there could be a completely separate movie done on him. I mean, his inclusion with the Chicago Seven in originally called the Chicago Eight is already very yeah. complicated, and it they, is. you know, his character doesn't even pay lip service to that. He says that mm-hmm. in the actual movie, he says, "I was included with these guys to well, add a black man to the defense table references- to make us look yeah. scarier." Oh, yeah. yeah. And then he talks about the protesters outside. They're holding signs that say Chicago 7 because I'm not one of them. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, again, Bob, Bobby Seale's inclusion in the real-life trial is complicated. His inclusion in the movie is complicated. Um, I agree that he's one of the best parts in the movie. And, like, maybe he's he's not the focus. Maybe he should have been more of the focus. I don't really know. But, like, uh, regardless, Yaya Abdul-Mateen is great. And uh, the story of Bobby Seale is fascinating. And yeah. um, I, I'm glad I know more about him now, having seen this. But I also sure. understand the complaints about, you know, the movie 
focus like too much, but also not enough on him. A- again, it's they're between rock and hard place. It's tough, particularly um, given the real life events in in you know June of twenty twenty to you know maybe heighten the racial aspect of the trial a little bit. Uh, I can see the um, the instinct I, there on, on Sorkin's part. Yeah, um, I Go think ahead, I'm going to be a broken record again, um, but I don't think he should have been more in the movie. I I just mm-hmm. think. Uh, the pivotal scene where he gets bound and gagged uh, in front of everyone and shocking, see, uh, shocking and stuff. he's in chains yeah. is first of all a really 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 well done scene mm-hmm. and that's that's clear um it actually did happen um the context in which it happened in real life i think is very interesting um because uh, the actual murder of 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 the other Black Panther leader ap- happened months later, and what he said to get the judge to to do that to him was uh, something very strong that I don't. That, again, I don't know if the movie was willing to go that strong, and I don't know if the movie was willing to have that conversation, um, because what what he actually said, the quote from the transcript is after he he was discussing with the judge for the upteenth time that uh, the judge wouldn't allow him to represent himself and he wouldn't allow him to cross-examine the witnesses. And so what he said at one point, he snapped to the judge and said, um, you have George Washington and Benjamin Franklin sitting in a picture behind you. And they were slave owners. That's what they were. They owned slaves. You're acting in the same manner, denying me my constitutional rights. That's what he said to the judge. And that's when the judge told the marshals, uh, as he does in the movies, in the movie to deal with him as he should be dealt with. Yeah. And then they bring him away and they bring him back bound and gagged. So that is a powerful, powerful statement from this black Panther leader, um, who obviously was, was, a, you know, a very radical left movement, uh, that I don't, again, the film, what did decided not to include in the film. And I, and I don't think you need more time with him to do that statement. You know what I mean? You could have the same amount of time, but include that statement, which I think is really powerful and and and, and also could work within a Sorkin script perfectly again. So I, yeah. Again, I, I, I don't know why I, they decided I don't know exactly why they, to not it, do that. I, I have to assume that it's the same reason that I've been saying the whole time is yeah. is to make so just things make it more, more palatable, palatable for a wider audience. Which yeah. if, I can understand that, especially since you've read all this stuff, I can see how that would change your opinion of the movie. Uh, a, a little yeah. bit. Uh, it that's it, a conversation worth having. Is it worthwhile to make to to water down some of these situations a little bit to make it more palatable? If that means mm-hmm. that the message reaches a wider audience, is that worth it, or is it more important that the actual events be portrayed one hundred percent accurately, even if it makes some people uncomfortable? And you know. I, yes, in a lot of ways, I, I agree with you, Hugo. That you know, I think that these things could have been done in a Sorkin movie, and they're they're Sorkin yeah. level writing. You know, very mm-hmm. very clever statements, powerful, stuff. powerful yeah. statements. Uh, but if if you're trying to make a movie that you want everybody to watch, I can see why. You know, in the grand scheme of things, I don't even know like how involved the production companies are. You know, with with Aaron Sorkin's script here, did they? Mm-hmm. I don't know the earlier drafts. You know. Yeah. For all I know, it, <laughs> someone told him, "Hey, let's go ahead and tamp this down, yeah, this down. tone it yeah. down a little bit." Yeah. <laughs> it could be. It could be. It's. So, I don't know. It, it's complicated. It's definitely complicated. I. But I, but I, I, say I am a fan. I am a fan of art that makes people uncomfortable. So sure, that's I will my say my perspective. One last thing on the ending, because I know we want to move on. Uh, we, yes. we, we we referenced the saccharine nature 
of mm-hmm. of this movie, and, and I already Capra-esque. mentioned that uh, yes, it, it is Capra esque, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's one of those things that Sorkin does a lot, and I uh, I think that this ending, while very sweet, I just wanted to touch on that you know that optimism uh, that means so much to me. I and I'm, I'm I'm rambling a little bit. I wanted to say that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, which we established was not anything like the actual prosecutor, uh, I don't mind that creative license at all, that they made that mm. him more likable. Because one of the messages that I always like about Sorkin in everything, all his political stuff is that uh, there's a way to make the system work better. And mm-hmm. that way is by putting the right people in the job. Uh, and by have, making this prosecutor a more likable person, a more reasonable person, you get that glint of hope that, you know, it's possible going forward that, like, you know, you see him stand at the end for all, for all the fallen. So maybe there's hope that this guy is not going to kowtow to his bosses going forward. You get that little, yes, yes, it's very poetic and sweet and all that stuff, but I eat it's that. It's a little, little much for me. I love it. I, I'm like, yeah, but it, it, give me some hope. To your point. <laughs> to your point, he is. It is established in the first scene that he's a thirty-three-year-old assistant, you know, attorney. So, like, maybe he is the future of what prosecution will be like in the United States. The problem with that is we are in the future, and we kind of yeah. know that it's not. Yeah, you know, yeah, like fair. that's. <laughs> that's I think, issue. like, I understand the optimism of the movie, and I appreciate you responding to the optimism, but it's tam- it's dampened by the fact that we live in twenty twenty one, and yeah. we know what the future holds, and like, we know that nothing kind of. I mean, not, not nothing changes, but like I don't know, maybe not enough has changed. Well, in terms 100%, of one hundred percent, not enough has changed. But yeah. that's that's. I think that's why I like this message is because again, okay. the whole the whole thing fair. is that uh, what we can be, not what we are. What we can be, and not what we are, yeah. and, and that's what this movie is about. It's like, look, these are the problems that yeah. we had then. Here's how, you know, we can address them going forward and actually improve. Right. And the way we do that is by actually taking the steps to improve. Yes. <laughs> so we are we are nearly an hour in, so I'm going to move us along very quickly here. Uh, real quick, stuff about the Oscars for this uh, movie. I'm just going to read these as quickly as I can. If you guys want to jump in, please do, but otherwise yep. just let me vamp. Um, this currently, according to the Las Vegas odds, this is currently the second most likely movie to win Best Picture. Um, I kind of don't think it will personally i think that no man land is going to take it but uh like i said earlier like the surface level politics feel like something the academy might have been more inclined to give best picture to like 10 years ago but the politics kind of seem a little tame in 2021 yeah go ahead yeah just one thought on that uh i think it's still very likely that they could give them that because uh while while sometimes the academy shows that they've made progress and care about deeper meaning on stuff they also give green book Best picture. That's true. So yes, they sometimes they don't really care that it's that deep, you know? <laughs> and I, I much prefer the politics of Charles Chicago 7 to the politics of Green Book, but I do not want to get into that right now. Um, but in terms of his best picture chances, uh, something that's often often stated is that the largest voting branch of the Academy is the actors branch. And there are a lot of actors in this movie, a lot of great performances in this movie, compared yep. to the other best picture frontrunner, which is Nomadland, which notably only has two professional actors in it, and otherwise is peopled by non-professional actors. So I think that that is actually something worth noting in terms of this movie's Best Picture chances is there's a lot of actors voting for Best Picture. Um, And I think that the movie's other uh, Oscar chances down the line kind of depend a little bit on its Best Picture chances. Like, uh, for example, the editing Oscar. Um, 
a nomination for best editing is a very odd bellwether for best picture chances. Like if, if a movie gets nominated for editing, like movies that win best picture are almost always nominated for editing, whether or not they win is another case, but like, that's just like a weird, a weird anomaly of, of like Oscar trends. Like I don't, I can't really explain why that's almost as if good editing is important for good movies. Or it's almost (laughs) as if people don't really know what editing is and don't know what good editing is. Uh, but (laughs) regardless, um, okay. Uh, Alan Baum, Alan Baumgarten uh, edited this. I've already yep. praised it. It's great editing. Uh, so he could, you know, the execution of the screenplay is heightened by the tight editing by Alan Baumgarten. So um, I think Sorkin scripts are often well served by good editing. The way that se- his scenes cross cut. I've already mentioned that. Um, the Social Network won Best Editing at the Oscars. Moneyball was nominated for Best Editing at the Oscars. Uh, Steve Jobs wasn't, but it should have been because it also has a lot the cross cutting. So um, if this wins in editing, I wouldn't be that surprised because the editing is great. Um, I think the most obvious uh, opportunity for this to win anything is an original screenplay. Um, no surprise yeah. there, given it's Aaron Sorkin. I think that its biggest competition is Promising Young Woman. Um, hmm. If if Promising Young Woman wins Best Original Screenplay, which will probably be handed out early-ish in the night, or at least earlier than Best Picture, Yeah. if Chicago 7 loses original screenplay... Call your bookie and put all your money on Nomadland winning Best Picture because if the, if Chicago Seven does not win Best Screenplay, it's not going to win not Best Picture. Better. Yeah, that's just agreed. Uh, with the exception of The Shape of Water, I think every Best Picture winner in the last like I don't know fifteen years also won its respective screenplay category. So mm. this year, Nomadland is an adapted screenplay. Chicago Seven is an original screenplay. So they could both win the screenplay category and, and then that's win not Best Picture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if this loses original screenplay. Call your bookie, put all your money on No Man Land. Put your mortgage on No Man Land, because that's what's going to win Best Picture later in the night. Okay, but just for the record, we don't give betting advice. Uh, <laughs> if you lose all your money, that's not on us. We, we, we don't, that's not us. Correct. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Council Grizz. Um, I, I think it's pretty obvious that Sasha Baron Cohen will definitely be nominated for Supporting Actor. Uh, yes. I don't see him winning, but I think he could be nominated. God, I hope and he I wins. Also, he, I mean, I think that... Uh, um, Daniel Kaluuya playing Fred Hampton in oh, Judas and well, Black Messiah fair. is the is the clear <laughs> favorite. Um, I think Mark Rylance could also sneak into supporting actor. I think like three of the five spots for supporting actor are kind of like, you know, determined right now. But there's like a few wild card spots, and Mark Rylance could definitely sneak in there. Former mm. uh, best supporting actor Oscar winner for so Bridget Spies. So good, Bridget very Spies. good. Well, I mean, I wanted Sly Stallone to win that year for Creed, so I was kind of upset that I, Rylance won. I was a, if anyone if he was gonna if Sly was gonna lose to anyone. I was happy that it was Mark Rylance from. Uh, That's Bridges a good Spies. movie. Bridge of Spies is a pretty good movie. We didn't really yeah. talk about, it, but it's uh, that movie was really solid. It's, um, it's surprisingly good. Yes. Let's not go into it, but I I thought it would be kind of, I don't know, kind of okay, boring, but I thought it was really really good. It's surprising. In the last last category is uh, best director, um, and so later this week, actually tomorrow and Monday, or I'm sorry, tomorrow and Tuesday, the uh, Directors Guild nominations come out, and if Sorkin is not included there. I mean, he probably will be, but if for some reason he's not, that means this probably won't win the Oscar for Best Director. But mm. um, I mentioned that it's Best Picture chances kind of affect affect the down the line stuff. Like if this ends up being our Best Picture winner, I think it's fairly possible that Sorkin could win Best Director. But I, I kind of doubt it. Um, I, I doubt it. Yeah. I, I honestly like I I don't have any problem with his direction in this movie, but I like Hugo said at the top, not really particularly groundbreaking. Yeah, in, in direction. Yeah, it's, so it's well, competent, but it's not. So, I'll even say it's, it's not, good. It's good. It's better yeah, than yeah, just no, competent. Com- it's just it's competent not in the amazing. sense that it's good, but you know, it's kind of like traditional. So, it's not, there's nothing about the direction specifically that 
stands out. So I mean, I'm, I'm aside not, from the editing, and I agree on the editing. Well, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not casting aspersions to anybody on this podcast right now, but I think that a lot of people sometimes mistake cinematography for directing. Right. And they see good cinematography yeah. and call that good directing. But directing is more than just cinematography. It is mm-hmm. editing. It's also performances. The fact that there are a lot of really great performances in this is indicative of good good directing. Um, and, you know, uh, actors in this have, like, kind of... Um, they've referenced in interviews that Sorkin... Uh, he's, like, almost a conductor more than a director in that he's listening to the cadence and the pace and the music of the dialogue... And sometimes a scene will be playing out in front of him. He won't even be looking at the monitor. He'll have his like his headphones on and his head down, just like listening for it. So, you know, I don't want to like I undersell think, his yeah, direction. The, the patter you know? is so important to his writing, and I think that as a director, he gets to get that patter out there as as way as, as well as he wants it. So yeah, there's yes. something to say for that. Yes. Uh, so. Uh, that's all I got on the Oscars. Uh, I think it'll get a lot of nominations. It, this might be the most nominated movie actually at the Oscars, it, but I, I could see that. But I also could see a possibility where it gets like you know eight or nine nominations and only wins one for screenplay, or maybe mm-hmm. even wins zero. Uh, who knows? But yeah, so that's uh, Trial of Chicago Seven. Shall we rank it? Yes. Yes. Okay, we are so running so long. That's okay. Um, Again, I'm 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 gonna get outvoted on this one. Yeah, you're so gonna you, be outvoted I mean, on this, guys, Hugo. So yeah, so you guys should choose. I haven't really given much thought to where I'd put this, but Grizz, what are you what are you thinking? Um, I would put it just under "It's a Wonderful Life," above Ma Rainey's "Black Bottom," but below "It's a Wonderful Life." Yeah, I mean, again, this list is uh, meaninglessness, and, uh, meaningless and complicated. <laughs> you know, I think this is better than Ma Rainey, but I don't think it's as good as like Mank or Jackie Brown. But I don't know. I don't know what that means for for our ranking. It means T- um, time to put it. Rather... I mean, so like basically, we would all raise our hands. Like so, like Hugo, where where is it? Where do you have it? Where do you start? I don't know. I have a Starting hard from time. the bottom and moving you don't, up. You don't like it better than Godfather Part Three Electric Boogaloo? I do, I do. Okay, uh, I so we can probably, start with better probably, than that. <laughs> do you like it better than it, Iron Man 3? I would probably put it above Iron Man 3. So you don't okay. like it's better than Matrix Reloaded? I, I, I was going to swear that. I love The Matrix Reloaded. I know I'm in the minority of the world I need, on this, but I, need I to, love that movie. Okay, for future episodes, I'm going to memorize some of the architect's speech to Nia so I can say that to you next time you bring up Matrix Reloaded. <laughs> Ergo, oh, yes, an anomaly. Vis a um, <laughs> Okay, so... I, I don't know. I'll so, probably put it... I could I could put it between Mank and Jackie Brown. That might be where I would put it. Okay, so then that's where it would, it would fall off because we'd both have our hands up in favor of being above Jackie Brown. And then you would put your hand down, and it would just be me. So that's where it would stop. So we put yep. it uh, under Mank. Sure, sounds good. Cool. In our meaningless list, it that... means something to me, Josh. It does not mean <laughs> anything. Um, so let's now that we're sixty-five minutes in we're, the podcast, let's get into our main academy. topic. <laughs> we're our, our own little academy, and this is how we've decided the best movies. <laughs> yes, uh, Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin is our main topic. So let's let's talk about Aaron Sorkin. Um, real quick, I just uh, he's among the most famous screenwriters working today. Uh, I think if you ask any random person to name a screenwriter, Aaron Sorkin might be the most frequently yeah. named. Uh, um, he's Tarantino, the Coen Brothers. He's see, yeah, but the thing is, like a lot of people think though. of them as directors, and they wouldn't uh-huh. even think of them as necessarily as writers, even though they do write. Uh- a Up lot. until Maybe. four years ago, he he didn't have any directing credits, but yeah. uh, just now he has two. 
Yeah, um, he's definitely famous as a screenwriter, and yes. the Coens and Tarantino would be famous primarily as directors, and then... As However, uh, this is a little fun anecdote that we don't have time for, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because I'm hosting this podcast. Um, <laughs> even though his first directing credit was 2017's Molly's Game, he yep. had some directing experience before that. If you watch the special features on the Social Network DVD, um, apparently, like... They were wrapping up production. They were almost done. They ha- almost had everything they needed for to go into post-production. But Fincher just kind of pieced out with like a day or two to go and said, all right, I'm done. Aaron, you're in charge. You can get the last last few pickups. And so Aaron Sorkin, for the last day of production on The Social Network, actually did direct. the. He, I think he only had to do one shot. One shot in um in the montage in the opening seek in the beginning where it's like uh girls being brought into the Phoenix and like Mark coding. Like there's mm-hmm. one shot where like the camera like moves into the Phoenix house and like someone's looking at something on the computer. I think he's looking at Face Smash uh, on the computer. Yeah. And that yeah. one that one shot was directed by Aaron Sorkin because Fincher just kind of left set and was was done with the movie, I guess. And <laughs> apparently Sorkin Sorkin got one take and he's like, All right, so we got it, right? And everyone else is like <laughs> Everyone else was like, God, uh, David's going to want multiple takes, I think, so I'm going to do it a couple more times, <laughs> just for safety. Yeah, and, so, I'm sure, um, and I'm sure Fincher, knowing him, left him extensive notes of this yeah. five-second shot and how it, it, it should it's be. It's probably less than a five-second shot, to be honest, but that's yeah. just like, a, it's a fun thing that Aaron Sorkin was a second-unit director on uh, The Social Network, and he did one shot on the last day of production. Um, but, so, again, he is more known as a screenwriter, and yeah. uh, some of the... He has a very distinct style that's very imitatable and has been very imitated and parodied. Uh, that distinct style includes uh, ping-pong dialogue, walk-and-talks, big emotional speeches, uh, centering on politics, being stories about powerful people. Um, a lot of his movies have father-daughter relationships in them, mm-hmm. uh, most notably Moneyball, Steve Jobs, uh, Molly's, Mo- Game. Uh, Molly's Game, etc. He does have a college-age daughter, so that's probably his, his real life creeping into his work um he loves courtrooms and legal disputes uh most famously his first movie was a few good men and this movie is a courtroom movie there's courtroom stuff in molly's game there uh a few good men was based on a play that based on a play that he had had written written. yes and also uh the social network is you know about a you know they never actually make it never actually make it into a courtroom in 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 social network but it is about you know two depositions are the legal narrative Mm -hmm. spine of that movie exactly (laughs) yeah uh anything else for Sorkin Hallmarks, did I cover them all? I mean, uh, yeah, no, uh, I think Hugo wanted to mention that it's very American. He he's very American focused yes. in a lot of his writing, yeah. and that, which is not like like Hugo has in her notes, not necessarily good or bad, but you know, yeah, just it is true. Uh, let the record show that yeah, Hugo is un-American. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, direct all your you, tweets so at Hugo underscore nine <laughs> in a very literal sense. Um, uh, but I think you know what I mean. Is his subject yes, matter is his themes are mm-hmm. very um, culturally American, and that's yes. not a positive or a negative. It's just that I'm sure that they would res- they resonate a little bit less with with an international audience. That's, that's sure. what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, as I said, he he's right for parody, which to me just means he has a style distinct enough that he can't be parodied. Uh, before yes. I. Uh, 
I just want to shout out Inside Amy Schumer, which had a parody of Sorkin, where a sketch called The Food Room, which is a parody of The Newsroom, and it's a, a Sorkin scene that takes place at a fast food restaurant. It's just really delightful. <laughs> really I sent to you guys stuff. earlier this week. It's really good. Uh, Grizz, what do you got? Well, I was going to say one other hallmark is uh, Sorkin reuses material. Uh, he uses, look like, he'll pull lines from his movies and TV shows and reuse them. The one I guess enough joke in, mm-hmm. in this movie is from an episode of The West Wing. Mm. Uh, that's cool. Uh, Interesting. So, like, and it's, that's not the only time that he does this, but, like, uh, uh, in, an, in an, an American president, or the American president, I always forget. Just called the American president. The think, American yeah. president. Uh, they have a, a quote uh, the, the president is dealing with a, having to make a decision about how to uh, retaliate for a an attack, and the, the quote is, "What is the virtue of a proportional response?" And that mm. be, that exact quote gets pulled and is used in an episode of The West Wing, and the exact same sort of scenario. And if you watch enough Sorkin, and I have watched literally everything that Sorkin has on screen, everything, <laughs> you will see yeah. just how often he pulls things. He pulls names. He uses the same names for characters. Uh, it's it's crazy how like and I so, to me it's like an Easter egg. I get to another little Aaron Sorkin <laughs> Easter egg. Uh, but if you're not paying attention, you might not notice it. <laughs> um, I, I've I've not seen all of the American President. I watched like two thirds of it last last month or a month or so ago. Then it left Netflix. So I wasn't able to finish it. But I <laughs> I can tell that movie is just a a dry run for the West Wing. One hundred percent. Actually, yeah, yeah. It, it basically, my problem with the American president versus the West Wing is the American president's more about a love story, and the West Wing is it about is. politics, baby. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go on record and say that uh, politicians and presidents in particular shouldn't date lobbyists. I just think it's a, <laughs> Probably a, a good, flag yeah, I'm going to plant in the ground of yeah, thumb. <laughs> in regard to the American president. Probably not. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, Grizz, you said you're a big Sorkin fan. I'm a big Sorkin fan as well, and I, I've listened to... Uh, many many interviews he's given to the point that like I can kind of like say his stories verbatim because he you know everyone says the same you know they have their interview stories they kind of just tell over and over again um, and uh, so I can say that he has said repeatedly that he loves the sound of dialogue and his parents used to take him to plays when he was too young to understand the play that he was watching but he liked the sound that the dialogue made and that it was like music to him and in his own writing he likes to make that music and so that kind of leads in you know the actors in Chicago 7 said that he just was just listening to the scenes as they were acting them out instead of watching it because that's what he is focusing on. It's, it's so the rhythmic. music of the dialogue. Ugh, I love it. It I is. <laughs> and no better no better version of that than, I think, the opening scene of The Social Network, which is maybe a, a career highlight for him just in anything he's ever made. Uh, just the the way that dialogue flows and the pitter-patter is just uh, outstanding. I think that movie so, also benefits from a score that kind of goes with that pitter-patter kind of sound uh when sorkin's dialogue is at its best with the yeah yeah sorkin's dialogue is at its best with music that matches the tempo of his dialogue and that is something that a great director like fincher Mm -hmm. would take into account uh so uh brilliant stuff (laughs) i think that so this is (laughs) fincher's filmmaking style is actually really really um well aligned with sorkin's writing style because you know people talk about fincher's hundred takes what they don't talk about is how his hundreds of takes like feed into how his movies are cut together like it's very rare to see a shot in a fincher movie last more than like two or three seconds and like i i I imagine he does 50 takes of each scene that way he has 50 different takes of 
Jesse Eisenberg saying this one line and 50 different takes of Rooney Mara saying this other line. He can like use, you know, have so many options to cut together their, their dialogue. But he, you know, Sorkin has quick, quick quips, you know, you know, back and forth, back and forth, ping pong, ping pong, ping pong. And that's how Fincher's movies are edited anyway. In yeah. almost every case. So I think that they're like a, a match made in heaven. They should make more movies together. But um, I agree. What do I have on the outline? What do you guys like about Sorkin? I think we kind of already covered this. Um, I think we covered it, yeah. I, I, well, I want to say that like his characters are smart. Uh, Grizz, I think you mm-hmm. mentioned that you like that as well. His, That's um, my favorite thing about it. I, yeah. And I, I think if, that sometimes sometimes they can all sound alike. Um, yeah. But That's, I kind of don't mind that. I the thing that I like best about it is that I think uh, it's maybe it's just the way I grew up. Uh, I, I'm not the smartest person in the world. I'm fairly intelligent, uh, and I, <laughs> but I got bullied a lot, you know, for uh, uh, you know for being a know it all, for being you know a, a smart. I'm sorry kid for laughing that. at you. I was I wasn't laughing at I mean, your. I know you're not I laughing at that. Okay. I, 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 I mean, how do you say I'm smart, but I'm not like I'm, I'm not bragging. I'm an intelligent person, but I'm not I'm not. Uh, Grizz, I think you're smart, so I'm going to say for you, so you don't have to say about your smart about yourself. You are a yes, smart guy. Yes. Point is, I we got bullied agree. for it, and so I think that's one of the things that resonates with me about Sorkin's writing is that Sorkin is not afraid to make his characters the smartest guy in the room, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. that it doesn't shy away from intelligent dialogue because you know, it, because people might not know the word or you know whatever. He, he, everyone is intelligent. Everyone in his movies is smart. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I agree, and I also think that I, I like that he usually sets his stories in high stakes environments. Um, things that are yes. just implicitly dramatic just by being set there, whether it be uh, you know going through filmography, court martials, the American presidency, war in the Middle East, a major league general manager, titans of industry, uh, the Russian mob involved in poker games. Like all of that is very high stakes. So just there's going to be drama regardless of what story you're telling. And also, uh, he, his main characters are usually trying to do something bold. Um, I have the outline he, outline he writes about renegades. It's, you know, maybe that's a little bit of a strong word, but like, you know, Billy Bean is trying to do something new in Moneyball. Uh, Je- Jesse Eisenberg's Zuckerberg character is trying to do something new in the social network. Uh, Charlie Wilson is trying to think outside the box in this Russian Soviet Afghan conflict. And, uh, you know, and there's usually someone trying to like rein them in. Like it's it's someone with ambition and big crazy ideas that are that are dangerous. And someone's like, "Hey, you can't have big crazy ideas. You need to be more normal." And uh, I don't know. It's it's a formula, but I, I like it. I think it works for me. Um, yeah, and I think la- the high stakes situation always uh, contributes to having a sense of urgency in in mm-hmm. anything that's happening. And even though they're so dialogue heavy, even though most of the scenes are dialogue walking and talking as we said people sitting and talking um because of the how high stakes the situation around the dialogue is you always feel like this sense of urgency and 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 this this energy to to what is actually happening yes which i think is and because he has those settings that are kind of like inherently dramatic i think that affords him the ability to um focus more on character. Uh, I think that mm-hmm. complex characters and simple plots is, is a hork is a Sorkin hallmark. Um, again, he has said in interviews, I've heard him say this a dozen times, at least he says that when he's coming up with a story, he focuses on two things, which are intention and obstacle. What does a character want? 
and what stands in their way from getting what they want. And that's really all you need to tell a story. That's that's just a, a cornerstone of good drama. And um, I think if you trace his filmography, it's pretty easy to see in his main characters what they want and what's standing in their way. And then just letting the story play out with those two things in tension. And that's where the drama comes from. Um, so I think that's what, you know, that's why I like him. That's, I guess, why you guys like him. What about some... Mm-hmm. Uh, I have shortcomings on the outline. I don't know if shortcomings is the right word, but like there are there are some detractors from from Sorkin. Uh, you know his, his his style can get a little overdone. I think. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think like I said, he's very easy, said easy before, to be imitated, parodied. Yeah, people I complain that he's that, preachy. That, yes, that he's always sometimes. trying to teach you a lesson. <laughs> yes. So th- there's a this is actually the thickest section of our outline is what Hugo and Ugris put down in the shortcoming section. So you guys go vamp. I'm gonna get my computer charger because we're running so long. My computer's dying. So you guys go ahead. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we can we can sort of um, rein well, it I... in a little bit what we what we're saying. But well, I, I think I, just I, yeah. before we get into go that, ahead. I just uh, I think as Josh was saying before, there is sometimes. A feeling that everybody kind of speaks in the same way, with the same rhythm, uh, with the same type of sense of humor, uh, in a way that I don't that doesn't always feel completely natural. But at the same time, it's so satisfying to listen to that it doesn't really matter because it is right. a movie. So it it it's it's whatever. Even if it isn't a hundred percent realistic, it's so entertaining and uh, easy and fun to watch. So it, it it's not that big a deal. Um. And also uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention, which is that I think he he's starting to be a director now, as we said, but in general, we'll see how him as a director will, will evolve. But in general, I do think he's a better writer than he is a director, which is kind of a generic uh, Aaron Sorkin take. But I do think his best movies are really well directed by somebody else. Uh, my favorite yeah, it, movies from him are The Social Network and Moneyball, which are really well-directed movies. So, and we'll see how that evolves in over time. And it's not to say that they're that like the movies he's directed, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. both good movies. They're just you know he's that good exactly. of a writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to say that I I don't begrudge that take, Hugo. Like you said, it's a very very common take on Aaron Sorkin that he's a better writer than he is a director. Mm-hmm. However, um, his movies have been directed by the likes of Rob Reiner and Bennett Miller and Mike David Nichols Fincher. and David Fincher and Danny Boyle. Those are among mm-hmm. the like 20 best directors of the last 30 years. And Sorkin yeah. is among the five best screenwriters of the last 30 years, but he's not one of the best directors of the last 30 years. So yeah. the fact that his movies are better when they're in someone else's hands, isn't really a shot at Aaron Sorkin's directing. It's just acknowledging the fact that some really, really, really talented directors have made Aaron Sorkin scripts. And he's, yeah, I mean, you, you can't compare a guy's second movie to David Fincher or Mike Nichols or Danny Boyle. It's just not 100%. fair. But, you know. Yeah, I, agree. I agree. I don't know. Maybe someday he'll reach so those heights. The one but... criticism that I really wanted to touch on, and I know we're running long, and but I would be, we would be remiss if we didn't address it. Oh, absolutely. Especially yeah, yeah, yeah. as I am such a big Aaron Sorkin fan, it's important to address these sort of, you know, shortcomings. Uh, he has received a lot of criticism for his portrayal of women characters in his movies and TV shows. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was exacerbated by some quotes that were leaked from uh, emails that were part of the Sony hack a few years ago. 
some of Aaron Sorkin's emails came out in that hack. Uh, and so I did want to address, you know, the uh, accusations of sexism in, in his writing. Uh, this, this is a, a big quote, so I'm just going to read the quote. Uh, this was from one of his emails that he had written to Maureen Dowd of the New York Times in reference to an article that, that she had written. Uh, the, some of the quotes were, this was about bridesmaids, is what the article was about. Uh, There's an implication that studio heads have a stack of bridesmaids quality scripts on their desk, and they're not making it. And it's just not true. The scripts aren't there. And he also said, that's why year in and year out, the guy who wins, Os wins the Oscar for Best Actor has a much higher bar to clear than the woman who wins Best Actress. Kate gave a terrific performance in Blue Jasmine, but nothing close to the degree of difficulty for any of the five Best Actor nominees. Daniel Day-Lewis had to give the performance he gave in Lincoln to win. Jennifer Lawrence won for Silver Linings Playbook, in which she did what a professional actress is supposed to be able to do. Colin Firth slash Natalie Portman. <laughs> Phil Hoffman had to transform himself into Truman Capote, while Julia Roberts won for being Brassy and Aaron Brockovich. Sandra Bullock won for The Blind Side, and Al Pacino lost for both Godfather movies. Helen Mirren and Meryl Streep can play with the boys, but there just aren't that many tour de force roles out there for women. Okay. A lot of quote. Sorry, you know, yes. but I wanted to give the full context of that quote. Mm -hmm. uh, so where, where do you, where do you disagree with him there? That's I think he's kind of right. He's kind of right. And that, but that's, that's the issue is that, uh, and this is where, you know, if I'm going to say one bad thing about Aaron Sorkin, it's that he, he's commenting on that. There aren't that many tour de force roles out there for women. Aaron Sorkin is one of the most prolific writers in Hollywood. If he wants to make a movie about a, with a tour de force performance for a woman, he can do it. And so if you want to yep. say that, you know, he bears any responsibility for that, that's where it is. Uh, but he's right. The, the writers it, don't give women enough challenging roles. <laughs> it's it's well, not the so fault of the true. women. I, I'd, be, I'd, be careful, <laughs> I'd be careful where you're assigning blame to his quote okay, here. He's fair. saying the scripts aren't on the desk. I'm not sure if he's putting the blame on the writers or putting the blame on the studio heads for not grabbing those scripts that are Accepting Not grabbing those scripts. Notes. Also possible. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, a bit of both. Um, yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I don't really disagree with anything he said there i also want to keep in mind that was said what in like 2012 2013-ish when he yeah, said that it was I imagine. several years ago um and it's getting better but it's it's not it's not you know if you look at the best actor nominees for the last 15 20 years it's almost always for a performance that's also nominated for best picture and that is not the case with the best actress nominees that's just a, a fact um, and whether that yeah. says something about the movies and performances that the Academy is choosing to honor, or whether it says something about the state of the industry and roles for, for actresses, uh, you can draw your own conclusions, but, you know, I... I it's probably a combination. Yes. And, you know, I, I, we were talking off mic about the movie Brooklyn before we started recording, uh, that Churchill Ronan vehicle from 2015. And uh, uh, Nick, Horn, Nick Hornsby wrote... Hornby? Hornsby? I don't know. R regardless, he's a... Hornsby, he's a he's a author and screenwriter, and I went to a Q and A uh, that he was at about the movie Brooklyn, and someone asked him about writing female characters, and he said that um, this is in 2015 that he said this. He said there's such a dearth of good three dimensional female characters in movies now that if you write one, then the best actresses in the world will be knocking down your door in order to play that role, just because there's right. so few out there. That's the same spirit of what Aaron Sorkin is saying here, and I don't disagree with Nick mm -hmm. Hornsby or you know. It's a little indelicate the way Sorkin's saying it because it's not clear where he's yeah. putting the blame, as we kind of just said. But yeah. he's also not entirely wrong. I think I, I think sexism is a is a 
heavy. It's a bit of a leap. Strong, it's yeah. a bit of a leap from that. But, that, but I mean, those it's those quotes combined with the movies that he's written. Uh, yes. A lot of the movies he's written don't have a lot of really powerful women characters. Uh, yes. Now, I argue that C.J. Craig in The West Wing is a very powerful character, and mm-hmm. I argue that Demi Moore in A Few Good Men is a very powerful character. So it's not to say that there I is disagree, not... but... <laughs> uh, I disagree about the Demi Moore thing, but... She's the impetus yeah. of the whole thing. She's the reason that it's that it's that it's happening. Yes, she is. So she, she is. She she's exactly. So I mentioned the inside Amy Schumer inside Amy Schumer sketch. There's a quote in that sketch where Amy Schumer says, <laughs> uh, "I realize that a woman's life is worth nothing unless she's making a great man greater." And that is so, okay. so and that's so true. Of a satirically few good sharp about yeah, Demi Moore's character in A Few Good Men. It's a very very witty observation. But uh, I don't think that's a, a com- I don't think that's because Demi Moore is weak. I think it's that Demi Moore's character recognizes in that in that world, uh, the military, that she's not going to be able to get what she wanted because of sexism. She sure. lives in a world that is very sexist towards women, and so, so you yeah. know, she gets what she I, I wants. But also she says several times in the film, I know I'm not as good as you. Uh, I know you don't think I'm as good as you. I'm I'm here to support you because you're the better lawyer. Um, it, you know, it's um, it's iffy. It's kind of a thing that if it was the only time that he'd underwritten a woman, then you would probably wouldn't even notice it. Notice but it. because yeah, so. a lot of his writing has underwritten women or women who are in a role of supporting men... Um, yes, you kind of notice it a bit more, and you know, so, Chicago Seven, I think, is a big example of there are three women in speaking roles in this movie. Um, one of them is a police officer who gives a deposition, and two of them, pot. two of them, are women who have a few lines in the film, and they both get sexually harassed. So yeah, it you okay. know, so it's on that note, the best. This is this is something that I I I have thought about this a lot because I take you know, accusations of sexism pretty seriously. Uh, I, yeah. Sorkin's movies are all, as we've said, are all about very powerful people, powerful industries, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's, a, if it's necessarily that Sorkin is trying to underwrite women. It's that in the worlds mm-hmm. that he's talking about, women are mistreated. They are underrepresented, yeah. like in, like the social network, tech companies, notoriously bad about employing women and also have notorious mm-hmm. histories of mistreating women. And the same can be said in politics uh, for all the political stuff. You know, these are well-known things that, you know, yes. <laughs> women are underrepresented in these industries. And, and when they are there, they are frequently mistreated. So when Aaron Sorkin writes male characters like in A Few Good Men, the uh, uh, Colonel Jessup, who says some incredibly sexist remarks to Demi Moore... Yes, uh, very he does. early on yeah. in the movie, uh, you're not supposed to like that about Colonel Jessup. So it's not Aaron Sorkin isn't saying, "Look at all these powerful men. How great is it that they're mistreating women?" You're supposed to look at them. Look at these powerful men. What a bunch of jerks! How can they continue to mm-hmm. mistreat yeah. women? And you know, yeah. So I, I yeah, guess, the women aren't in powerful necessarily in powerful positions or getting the chance to be showcased in a lot of the stuff. But he is showcasing the sexism that is inherent in a lot of those places yeah i guess the last last thing i'll say is that the the comments that he made in the emails i get he i i don't disagree with what he's saying but i also agree with the people who think that maybe aaron sorgan isn't the guy to make that criticism 
given the yeah, movies he writes and fair. the position that he's in. You know, maybe he's not the person to deliver this message, even if the message is kind of there's some validity to it. And mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure I would say that sexism is a strong word. I'm not sure I would I would say that necessarily because he's just kind of ignoring the female characters for the most part in, in yeah. my eyes. Um, and I, yes, that's kind of that's kind of uninteresting to me because he's kind of limiting him the kind of story he tells. But um, I, I don't know. Boring is not the same as you know sexist, I guess. Yeah. Um, and no, it, Reductive is not the same as sexist, but I don't know. It, it, I, I also understand the criticism, and I think that he he probably understands the criticism too because he made Molly's Game in 2017, and you know that was his first mm-hmm. time first time in 30 years that he had a female protagonist. Um, I mean, am I wildly it, off based on on my view of the the topics that he's you know talking about and no, the, the inherent sexism of those industries? But I think there are. I don't think, I think there are. I mean, but yes and no, but I think between. Sorry, go ahead. I think you can choose <laughs> high stakes top. You can choose high stakes environments and high stakes topics that put women at the center of the frame, and he is choosing okay, high stakes true. environments that put men at the center of the frame. Um, yeah. Yes, a lot of high stakes environments are largely male dominated spaces, but not all of them. And well, no, for sure not know, all of them. I'm saying the a, ones that the he's, done... he's making. Okay, you're right. So he is choosing to write yeah. about those things. So yeah. there's a, at least that degree of responsibility in his writing because he is choosing those topics. So, yes. okay, I can agree with that. But I just think that, like, the treatment of women in those uh, movies isn't necessarily inaccurate to what those places are like or were like. Sure. But, my, you know, like, like I kind of... My response... Go ahead, Hugo, sorry. sorry. My, my response to that would be, yes, it is true, but you can, you can portray that. Um, the thing with his movies is that it's not just that uh, there aren't powerful women or women in position of power in them is that then there there aren't any well-rounded female characters because you can have a woman who is oppressed is in a position of not being empowered but who is a well-rounded individual fleshed out that record that that is fleshed out that recognizes that discrimination that she is being subjected to and and overcomes where, it. and it's true he doesn't he, yeah. he falls short even, on, on that he, even if she doesn't overcome it even if she doesn't overcome it but you can still have a well-rounded female character who is a victim of that or you can have a well-rounded female character that has nothing to do with that the, the issue is that it feels like women don't exist in his movies. Sometimes. They're a little ancillary. And yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's and, where I think the issue is. But and again, I, I guess so maybe a that's a misinterpretation of what when people said he's sexist. Maybe I misinterpreted what the complaint was. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I feel like we all agree with the complaint. Maybe just not the mm-hmm. specific word that they that you know the sexism word. However, I think that you know, it, it, much like his. Uh, emails that got leaked. I think that sometimes some of the things he says or does could come off as a little tone deaf. Like, for example, at the Golden Globes, Golden Globes last weekend, he won uh, the Golden Globe for Best Screenplay for this movie. And uh, in his Zoom acceptance speech, he shouted out uh, Regina King and um, Chloe Zhao and a few other female filmmakers and said, uh, my college-age daughter wants to be a filmmaker because of you guys. Um I think that's nice, and in the moment, I thought, oh, that's nice. I even, I even turned to my wife and said, that, that's nice that you said that. And it wasn't until I was listening to a, 
uh, a podcast like later in the week talking about the Golden Globes, uh, of which I've listened to many, and someone said that's kind of pandering and uh, maybe a little bit condescending to those female filmmakers who are, you know, made some of the best movies of the year and is like, oh yeah, my college daughter wants to. I, I don't know, like it. Maybe infantilizing is, is the right word I would use. Like I can kind of see why mm-hmm. someone could take issue with him saying that. Grace, you are you look, uh, you have a look of consternation on your face as if you disagree. Well, I, well, it's uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a man, so like I'm not. I, yes, I'm not yeah, me too. To, We're all to men. Tell here. women what to be upset about, you know. But uh, yes, you know. So I don't know. I it's one of those things. that's like, if his intention in saying it was to pander, then yeah, that's awful. Uh, don't pander. I, I didn't but really get that it, though in the moment. Like I, I, I didn't clock it in the moment. By yeah, any so that's means, the thing is but... I didn't I I haven't heard it at all. So I I mm-hmm. don't know, I don't know how he said it. And maybe his college age daughter really does want to be a filmmaker yeah. <laughs> in the vein of a Regina King. You know, like yes, you know. yeah, or Emerald Fennel. So like Wills. so yeah, it, you know. So it's not like it's a bad thing to say, but you know, but when you couple maybe... it with the reputation that he has, exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah, like maybe that sentiment is fine. What he said in the emails, the sentiment is fine, but like just because it's coming from someone that people are kind of a little on edge about in terms of female representation in both storytelling and filmmaking. So I think you know maybe what it'll it's a come down death. to for me is that he's doing his next movie is about uh, the Ricardos, you know. Yes. Uh, yes. Ricky Ricardo and and uh, Lucille Ball, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm pretty excited Lucille about that. Ball by the way, is gonna need to be a pretty prominent figure in this movie. <laughs> well, he's got uh, he's got Nikki Kids <laughs> casted possibly. So, Nicole Kidman playing her. Yeah. So this I think this will be a a good barometer to you know to see if he has learned from his past writing and has you know mm-hmm. and is actually you know. I'm I'm really hope hopeful for this next movie that, that yes. you know Nicole that he's Kinnan, listening to the criticism, yeah, and that he's going to write yes. a, sub, a sub, substantive role for Lucille Ball mm-hmm. because if you write this story and Lucille Ball is not as substantive as Ricky Ricardo, then what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I I I don't really know a ton about the real life people, but I see Desi Arnaz as a supporting character in Lucille Ball's life, and not the other yeah. way around. So Lucille, Lucille we'll, Ball is the lead. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll see how that turns out. That's that's a good uh, uh a good um, let, let's let's kind of wrap up a little bit. I, I want to talk yeah, about we can a few. Spe- I want to well, I want to talk about a few specific Sorkin projects. Grizz, you've seen everything. Um, yes, I okay. haven't seen everything. I, I've basically seen a few Good Men, and then nothing until like the Social Network. So there's like a 15 20 year gap where i haven't seen any of sorkin stuff but um mm-hmm. i think a few good men and the social network and moneyball are all three among my favorite movies ever made um i, I love a few good men if it's ever on tv which it is a lot i'll i'll watch it uh, that's <laughs> a that's a always sit down and watch for me uh i think the social network is among the best movies of the last 30 years if not the best and moneyball was um my favorite movie of that year uh and among the best movies of its decade um, I really like Steve Jobs and I really like Molly's Game and both of those kind of I think got overlooked a little bit. I think they were both like among the best movies of their respective years and I, you know neither one got a ton of Oscar attention, uh, if any. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like they both deserve deserve more, especially in like the in the pantheon of Sorkin movies. Um, any specific projects you guys want to want to shout out? I'll let Hugo um, go. I've, yeah, I've Hugo, seen go the ahead. same. I've seen the same stuff you've seen, and yeah, as I said, my favorites are The Social Network and Moneyball, for sure. Yeah, just um, stone-cold classics. Yeah, I think both are 
just absolutely fantastic. Um, with A Few Good Men, um, again, I think I had similar feelings that I have for Trial of the Chicago 7, even though it isn't based on real life, of course, but um, I felt like it was taking a very uh, optimistic view about something that I, I'm not personally necessarily not that optimistic about. So it didn't quite... I mean, I think it's a great, uh, re again, really well-made movie, perf really well-written, yes. really well-directed. The acting is brilliant. Uh, it just didn't yes. hit me as much. And if we weren't, um, if we, if we weren't yeah. an hour and 40 minutes into this podcast, I would do the entire You Can't Handle the Truth monologue right now because I have the entire thing memorized, <laughs> but we're too far in, so I, w I won't do that. Sorry, Next I, I cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, overall, I think, as I said, I think his screenwriting is, is fantastic. And especially when he gets to work with a really good director, he, he makes some yes. classics. Uh, in the spirit of spreading the wealth, uh, so Sorkin is a very well-known screenwriter among the most well-known. A guy who should be as well-known as Aaron Sorkin but isn't is a guy named Steve Zalian. He's also one of the most renowned screenwriters of the last 30 years. He co-wrote Moneyball, so I just wanted to shout him out. Like Moneyball is not a Sorkin-only script. Steve Zalian also mm -hmm. wrote a draft, and he's credited, and he is um, a brilliant writer. Check out all of his movies, so just shout out to Steve Zalian. Grizz, what's your... Uh, what are some of your okay. favorite Sorkin so projects? I've, like I said, like I've said, I've seen everything, every single one of his credits on IMDb for writing and for directing, obviously as well, because there's only two. So <laughs> but uh, I think that if if the overall preachiness of his work is something that you don't love, uh, you might enjoy it better in the television format because it's more spread out over you know episodes instead of cramming all of his message into. A, you know, two, two and a half hour movie, you've got mm -hmm. seasons uh, of stuff. Uh, so you might enjoy that better. My favorite Aaron Sorkin work is The West Wing, of which he mm -hmm. was the creator. He did eventually leave that show, and the show was not right? as good after he left. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, the show seasons? is seven seasons, but he, he, right, he but left. He was... uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I absolutely love The West Wing. It is my favorite television show, full stop. Uh, I, I rewatch it every year. Wow. <laughs> Uh, so I, I would recommend it. that. I, I need to. I need to see that. I've not seen any. Definitely of should watch. It's on HBO yeah. Max. Yeah. Uh, the newsroom, which originally released on HBO and is on mm -hmm. HBO Max as well, uh, is another TV show that I absolutely would recommend. Uh, but it is very preachy. It like the the big complaint about that that show <laughs> was from actual like news companies saying like, you know, look look at Aaron Sorkin coming in to teach us a lesson about how to do the news. And it's definitely that. It's <laughs> yeah. The uh, that like monologue that Jeff Daniels gives at the end of the pilot episode makes a round online yes. like every like two or three years. It'll go viral again, and like every like two years for, since twenty thirteen since it aired, just goes viral <laughs> every once in a while. Yeah, I don't know. It is yeah, it is I'd a lot of the that. hallmarks I'm... of like yeah yeah it, it, it's yeah. <laughs> the newsroom is very preachy uh, about like you know how things should should be done in the news, but if you like. If you like that, if you like the optimism of this is how things could be, then the newsroom is very good. And so I, I really enjoyed that. And then we've already said it to death. Moneyball, social network. Yes. yes. You know, watch I those movies. Say those, if you haven't watched those movies, what are you uh, doing? <laughs> Steve Jobs, like Steve Jobs is such a bold freaking undertaking. Like I remember when you know following the production of that movie when it was announced that aaron sorkin was writing a steve jobs movie is like okay cool then they announced it was going to take place in three scenes i was like what <laughs> how's that gonna work and then it it 
really works. And then it works. does. It like, works. Like, there's... <laughs> and again, just like, to take the life of one of the most famous influential guys of the last hundred years and dilute... Or not dilute, but like, hone his life down to three sequences is such a bold, bold thing to do. And I don't know. It's like Shakespearean and stagey. And I, I, I just watched it this week. I rewatched it. And that movie... It's really, really good, and I uh, more oh, time so Steve Jobs. That's one of my favorite things about uh, Sorkin's writing. Another one of my favorite things. Like I've said, probably a thousand things are my favorite things about Aaron Sorkin's writing, but <laughs> it, his writing is very uh, theatrical and not like movie mm-hmm. theatrical. I mean, like a play, you know. Yes. And I think yeah. that's because that's where his roots are. That. He wrote he wrote a play, mm-hmm. you know, A Few Good Men, uh, yep. and I uh, that is something I, I really enjoy about that is because. Uh, I don't know, something about theatrical productions, everything feels more character-driven to me, mm-hmm. yeah. and that is yeah. one of the things I like best. So uh, and don't get me wrong, I love a good action movie, but you know, I'm not watching the action movie for the, the characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas everything Aaron Sorkin writes, the characters are just great. They're, they're so well thought out. They have such personality. Uh, even if the personality is... You know, different vessels for Aaron Sorkin to insert his <laughs> ideology. Yeah, uh, but I like that. So, <laughs> I, I think that's uh, as good a place of any to uh, conclude. Anything else? Any closing thoughts on Sorkin? I think that was great. No, I'm good. Not much. I think. Cool. Yeah. So, we, we, uh, cool. what do we, we have? <laughs> great. We covered a lot. <laughs> Hour and forty-five minutes, guys. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hugo. <laughs> Hugo, what are we doing? What are we doing next week, Hugo? So next week we're going. We're going to do the first part of a two-part episode in which we are going to rank and kind of briefly review all of the Star Wars movies. Uh, We're going through the 11 theatrically released live-action movies. We're not going to do the Clone Wars Wars animated movie because I I just think it's unfair to talk about that movie without the context of the whole show. Uh, It's kind of really just a pilot for that it doesn't make any sense it doesn't really hold up as an individual movie so we're not going to talk about that so we're going to rank uh it the 11 theatrically released star wars movies and i hope you're as excited as, as i am for that because i'm really excited for that <laughs> you know <Ooh>. i am <laughs> hell yeah yeah okay so join us next week for a star wars discussion uh thanks for sticking around for how long we ran on this one and uh yeah. please rate us rate us five stars on itunes or whatever podcast app you're listening to this listening to us on or uh like the video on youtube subscribe on youtube comments i don't know what else are we supposed to say share with your friends all those anything things. uh in any yeah. interaction <laughs> any interaction is positive at, interaction tweet <laughs> at good game grizz on twitter to give him your hot takes on aaron sorkin sexism and tweet at hugo underscore panai about how un-american he is and uh <laughs> otherwise why, why is this a thing where Josh tries to get people to troll us on the internet? I'm, a, why is I'm that okay a with that. If you want to tweet at me engagement, about, man. Oh, American, engagement American is the name of the game. That's fine. Bad tweets still help the algorithm. So yes, <laughs> tweet at me. Debate me about well, America. I'm with I'm not going to disagree about if, if if it's the one dimensional characters. Yeah, uh, never mind. You're good. I'm trying to end the episode. We want to go for an hour sorry. and fifty. Okay. <laughs> sorry. See you guys next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.